Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. With tens of millions of Americans out of work, facing eviction and hunger, the U.S. Senate goes on recess without voting on COVID relief legislation. We speak to journalist David Dayen about why Washington has abandoned the American people. Essentially, we put a temporary hold on the deep recession that's coming. But that hold has been lifted. It was lifted at the end of July when the unemployment benefits went from $600 a week, federal enhancement to zero. And now we're staring down the barrel of a, a really tough economic time. And with 34 and counting infected with coronavirus at the White House, is the Trump administration spreading both the virus and bad habits in D.C.? We speak to pediatrician and activist Dr. Margaret Flowers. So many of the people that are supporting Trump are also fighting basic public health measures like wearing masks and keeping children out of schools and teachers as well so they don't get infected. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Thirteen men have been charged with conspiracy to commit kidnapping and terrorism crimes in connection with an alleged plot to overthrow the state government of Michigan and take Governor Gretchen Whitmer hostage. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel announced Thursday that six men were being charged in federal court related to the kidnapping plot and another seven men linked to a group called Wolverine Watchmen are being charged in state court for allegedly planning an attack on the Michigan state capitol. Responding to the arrest, Governor Whitmer said that these violent armed militia of the same type that stormed the state capitol in April to protest COVID shutdowns are inspired by Donald J. Trump, who declared, Liberate Michigan, in an all-caps tweet during those raids. When our leaders speak... Their words matter. They carry weight. When our leaders meet with, encourage, or fraternize with domestic terrorists, they legitimize their actions, and they are complicit. More from Whitmer after headlines. More than 1.2 million Americans filed new unemployment claims for the week ending October 3rd, the same day that U.S. Senate Leader Mitch McConnell announced that the full Senate would be in recess until October 19th without considering any of the COVID relief bills passed by the House. While there was back and forth this week about the possibility of a deal, these talks centered on Republican standalone bills to benefit only the airline industry. But while the plight of American workers received short shrift in the Senate and in this week's vice presidential debate, labor unions representing healthcare staff, teachers, transit employees, and millions of other frontline workers sued the Trump administration on Thursday for its failure to protect essential workers from COVID-19 by providing an adequate supply of masks, gloves, and other personal protective equipment. Related, the Washington Teachers Union is pushing back against a plan that will open some of D.C. public schools on November 9th, before the district's health emergency is lifted at the end of the year. And the union is supporting parents, teachers, and staff at one of D.C.'s premier public high schools, School Without Walls, who are protesting the firing of the principal, Richard Trogich. They say he was terminated after he told higher-ups that the school is not in physical condition to reopen safely for students. 
The Poor People's Campaign is one of the few groups insisting that low-income and working-class Americans do not suffer in silence. The Reverend Graylin Hagler of Plymouth Congregational Church in D.C. was one of those who spoke at a rally outside McConnell's home last month, tying together the issues of economic justice, the Supreme Court, D.C. statehood, and voting rights. When we talk about D.C. statehood, we're talking about an expansion of democracy. That's right. And McConnell has said that he does not want the expansion of democracy. Yes. To say that to give D.C. statehood is to go down the road of socialism and it would open the door to Puerto Rico possibly getting statehood, which means a full congressional delegation. So they don't want to expand democracy at all. And we see this right now in terms of trying to push through a nominee for the Supreme Court while we're in the midst of an election. That's right. right? Because they really want to take decision-making out of the hands of the people and a little oligarchy basically control the politics of this country that's based on corporate greed and is based on white supremacy. Let us be very honest about what's going on. That's right. You know, as as we look around, we got to understand that it's not only about D.C. statehood, it is about voter suppression also in this country. Yes. Organized to try to intimidate people from going to the polls. While McConnell is stalling on COVID relief, he has announced his determination to proceed with confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. But he's being stymied by fresh cases of COVID among Republican senators whose votes are needed for confirmation. Chantel James sat in on a talk this week about what could be Barrett's impact on the court. As Republicans rush to push the confirmation of Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, before the election, the most recent conversation in the Profs and Pints series focused on the Supreme Court. Profs and Pints, which presents scholars in informal settings to the public, held its talk called Supreme Court at a Crossroads, featuring Professor David Fontana of the George Washington University School of Law. Fontana talked about the past and future of the court, its public perception, and its actual power over our lives. He gives a deep analysis of what we could expect in the event that Barrett was confirmed. I think it's safe to say that Justices Alito and Thomas will be the most conservative, Uh, And probably a Justice Barrett would join them as very conservative. And the question will really be about Roberts, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh and how they respond to this. Since Gorsuch and Kavanaugh have been confirmed, the Chief Justice of of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, has probably been the most powerful Supreme Court Chief Justice in a long, long time, maybe 100 years. Um, He only dissented two times in big cases this past term. To be the Chief Justice of the court, you know, where you're basically running the administrative operations of the court, but also to be the deciding vote in really important cases gives you enormous amounts of power. Will Roberts now vote as one of the reliable six conservative justices because he doesn't get to be the tie-breaking vote? If you get to be the tie-breaking vote, you have a lot of power. Think of Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski or Mitt Romney in the Senate, right? If you're the person that everybody thinks could break a tie, everybody wants to curry favor with you and you get to decide how the tie is broken. I also think it's safe to say, looking at Judge Barrett's record on the Seventh Circuit, but even more her record as a law professor, that she seems, as I said already, much more like Justices 
Alito and Thomas. She seems to be a much more reliable conservative vote, even than Gorsuch and Kavanaugh has been. Fontana also gave his perspective that in terms of the impact of the nomination on voters' decisions, he doesn't see undecided voters as being swayed by Barrett's position on the court. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. In Culture and Media, Thomas O'Rourke covered the final week of the extradition trial of journalist Julian Assange. The extradition trial for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange wrapped up on Thursday, October 8th, with final witnesses and the end of the evidentiary phase of the trial. The defense must submit written closing arguments by November 16th and the prosecution two weeks after that. Judge Vanessa Barritzer has stated she'll deliver her decision on January 4, 2021. Key arguments made by the defense in the last days of this four-week trial include that the case is politically motivated. In one example, Cassandra Fairbanks, an American right-wing media figure, testified this week that President Donald Trump approved the offer of a pardon for Assange in exchange for the supposed source of Democratic National Committee leaks and that Trump later ordered Assange's removal from the Ecuadorian embassy and subsequent arrest. Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg told the court that his motives were no different than Assange's and that this prosecution is an attack on freedom of speech and of the press because it seeks to silence Assange like Ellsberg for revealing embarrassing and even criminal truths about government abuses of power An additional political aspect is that the U.S. Espionage Act of 1917 is being used for the first time against a journalist. British former ambassador, now journalist, Craig Murray says, quote, The U.S. is claiming a universal jurisdiction to swoop down and destroy anyone who publishes anything it doesn't want revealed. This ridiculous claim of universal jurisdiction should not be accepted or tolerated for a moment in a British court. End quote. Speaking to governmental abuses of power, there was also testimony claiming that the U.S. intelligence agencies arranged for Assange to be spied on around the clock while in exile in the Equatorian Embassy in London, including surveilling privileged documents and conversation with Assange's attorneys, visiting doctors, and journalists. Finally, the defense argues Assange's medical history combined with the condition of U.S. prisons would amount to cruelty if he is extradited. After being in effect tortured for the past 18 months in the U.K.'s Belmarsh prison, witnesses said that Assange would face conditions comparable to lifelong solitary confinement if he's sent to the U.S. because he will be subjected to so-called special administrative measures that will allow him to be silenced and disappeared into a U.S. supermax prison after conviction in the Eastern District of Virginia, the U.S. government's preferred site for terrorism and national security trials with an overwhelmingly high rate of conviction. For On the Ground Radio, this is Thomas O'Rourke. In This Week in History, on October 6, 1917, Fannie Lou Hamer was born in Montgomery County, Mississippi, the 20th and last child of sharecroppers of Lou Ella and James Townsend. Dropping out of school by age 12, she eventually became involved in the civil rights and black freedom struggles and moved on to become a field secretary 
for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. And she was a powerful voice in the civil rights movement. She died in 1977. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Today, Attorney General Dana Nessel was joined by officials from the Department of Justice and the FBI to announce state and federal charges against 13 members of two militia groups who were preparing to kidnap and possibly kill me. When I put my hand on the Bible and took the oath of office 22 months ago, I knew this job would be hard. But I'll be honest, I never could have imagined anything like this. I want to start by saying thank you to our law enforcement. Thank you to the fearless FBI agents. And thank you to the brave Michigan State Police Troopers who participated in this operation, acting under the leadership of Colonel Joe Gasper. I also want to thank Attorney General Nessel and the U.S. Attorneys Burge and Schneider and their teams for pursuing criminal charges that hopefully will lead to convictions, bringing these sick and depraved men to justice. As a mom with two teenage daughters and three stepsons, my husband and I are eternally grateful to everyone who put themselves in harm's way to keep our family safe. 2020 has been a hard year for all of us. Hard for our doctors and nurses and truck drivers, grocery store workers. It's been hard for the teachers and students and parents. Hard for those who have had to stay isolated to stay safe. And it's not over yet. But here's what I know. We're Michiganders. We have grit. We have heart. And we are tough as hell. We made it through the Great Recession. We made it through auto bankruptcies. We made it through floods and polar vortexes. But none of us has faced a challenge like COVID-19. Not in our lifetimes. I've said it many times. We are not one another's enemy. This virus is our enemy. And this enemy is relentless. It doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, young or old, rich or poor. It doesn't care if we're tired of it. It threatens us all, our lives, our families, our jobs, our businesses, our economy. It preys on our elderly and medically vulnerable residents. And it has exposed deep inequities in our society. This should be a moment for national unity, where we all pull together as Americans to meet this challenge head on with the same might and muscle that put a man on the moon. Seeing the humanity in one another 
and doing our part to help our country get through this. Instead, our head of state has spent the past seven months denying science, ignoring his own health experts, stoking distrust, fomenting anger, and giving comfort to those who spread fear and hatred and division. Just last week, the President of the United States stood before the American people and refused to condemn white supremacists and hate groups like these two Michigan militia groups. Stand back and stand by, he told them. Stand back and stand by. Hate groups heard the President's words not as a rebuke, but as a rallying cry, as a call to action. When our leaders speak, their words matter. They carry weight. When our leaders meet with, encourage, or fraternize with domestic terrorists, they legitimize their actions, and they are complicit. When they stoke and contribute to hate speech, they are complicit. In 1981, President Ronald Reagan spoke to the NAACP's annual convention, and his comments stand in sharp contrast to what we have seen on the national and state level from his own beloved party in 2020. He said, a few isolated groups in the backwater of American life still hold perverted notions of what America is all about. Recently, in some places in the nation, there's been a disturbing recurrence of bigotry and violence. Then Reagan sent a direct message to those who still adhere to senseless racism and religious prejudice. You are the ones who are out of step with our society, he said. You are the ones who willfully violate the meaning of the dream that is America. And this country, because of what it stands for, will not stand for your conduct. So let me say this loud and clear. Hatred, bigotry, and violence have no place in the great state of Michigan. If you break the law or conspire to commit heinous acts of violence against anyone, we will find you, we will hold you accountable, and we will bring you to justice. For the past seven months, I've made tough choices to keep our state safe. These have been gut-wrenching decisions no governor has ever had to make. And I get it. Life has been hard for us all. When I get out of bed every morning, I think about the high school seniors, like my daughter, who missed graduation ceremonies, or those Michiganders who've missed weddings and funerals. I think about all the moms who are working from home, making breakfast every day, logging their kids onto their Zoom class, and doing the laundry. Think about the small business owners who spent a lifetime building something great, who are now hanging on by their fingernails just to keep the lights on. The disruption this virus has caused to our daily lives is immeasurable, and it has already taken the lives of more than 210,000 Americans, including over 6,800 right here in Michigan. As painful as these losses are, our hard work and sacrifices have saved thousands of lives. We have one of the strongest economic recoveries in the nation. Make no mistake, there will be more hard days ahead. But I want the people of Michigan to know this. As your governor, 
I will never stop doing everything in my power to keep you and your family safe. You don't have to agree with me, but I do ask one thing. Never forget that we are all in this together. Let's show a little kindness and a lot more empathy. Let's give one another a little grace and let's take care of each other. Wear your mask, stay six feet apart, wash your hands frequently, and look out for your neighbors. We are Michiganders. I know we can get through this. We will get through this. So let's get through it together. Thank you. You have been listening to Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer speaking on Thursday, October 8th, after the announcement that 13 men were arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit kidnapping and terrorism crimes in connection with an alleged plot to overthrow the state government of Michigan and take her hostage. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And for more on what I guess I'm calling COVID madness, I'm joined by Dr. Margaret Flowers, pediatrician and veteran human rights activist who co-founded with her late partner, Kevin Zeese, the movement organizing website Popular Resistance. She also hosts the show Clearing the Fog and has been on the front lines for local national and international campaigns for health care, economic, and environmental justice. Welcome back to the show, Margaret. Uh, thank you for having me, Esther. Well, uh, number 45 said on Thursday that the drug cocktail he received at Walter Reed Army Medical Center is a cure and that he's not infected anymore. And he refuses to do a virtual debate with former Vice President Joe Biden saying that, you know, he he shouldn't be made to be an, an isolated in a in a debate like that. Uh, and of course, the the people putting on the, the presidential debates are are concerned because he has been diagnosed as being uh, infected with COVID. So I just wanted you at first to, just to give some reaction to just this latest development from the White House, which seems to be a serious site of contagion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so first off, I would like to point out that President Trump was treated in a government owned and operated medical facility, uh, something that is denied to everybody else in the country, but shouldn't be. We should all have access to that kind of uh, health care. But, you know, I, I wouldn't take it from Trump's word. People can carry the virus, you know, for quite a while after they have a case of COVID-19. And so I think the public and the debate staff should really demand that they have some proof that he's no longer shedding virus before they would let him into a room with other people. Right. And I guess to add to what you said about the public hospital, Bernie Sanders put out the figure that if uh, you or I had that type of treatment, it would have cost $100,000. <laughs> right. Uh, 
And all these lawmakers in D.C., they all have government paid what we call platinum health care plans, fully paid by tax dollars. So, Oh, absolutely. Right. For themselves and their family and access to health care right at work as well. So this outbreak at the White House, I think the last count I heard was that 34 people at the White House have tested positive for COVID. And this has happened after... Uh, Trump held several events without social distancing, without people wearing masks. And the one most often cited is the event Trump held last month to announce his Supreme Court nominee, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, for the Supreme Court. So I wanted to ask you about this kind of lackadaisical attitude. And uh, some people are reporting that This kind of event, even with that relatively small crowd in the Rose Garden, could be a super spreader event for the for all of Washington, D.C. Well, it definitely has infected people who could then go out into D.C. and and infect more people. So it's something to be concerned about. But I think what it really shows is just the amount of privilege and lack of concern for the welfare of others that we're seeing from this administration and others who are associated with it. I mean, obviously, they don't feel like they're vulnerable. They feel like if they come down with COVID-19, they're going to get the best care no matter what it is. They're not going to, you know, suffer from it. And, you know, they don't seem to have any regard for the fact that, you know, what kind of example are they setting? You know, look at, you know, so many of the people that are supporting Trump are also fighting basic public health measures like wearing masks and, you know, keeping children out of schools and teachers as well so they don't get infected. And, um, and just, you know, and not, you know, taking responsibility for trying to stop the spread of this virus that's killed so many people, over 210,000 people now. As a a resident here in the city, I wonder how much that attitude of privilege or, or just not caring about other people, I wonder how much that seeps into the general population. You know, I think I mentioned before we went on the air that one of the things I really enjoy doing is to get fresh air, is to go to the park. And I've actually stopped kind of going to some parts on the weekend because there's so many people there who come and don't wear masks, particularly the joggers, you know, jogging by you on a really close path and bikers going by you with no mask, huffing and puffing, right? And these are precisely the people who are supposed to be wearing a mask. And I've tried to tell myself, well, it could be that they've received mixed messages. The mayor put out a directive that if you're doing vigorous exercise, you don't have to wear a mask or face covering. But there was a second part to that. And it was just, if you are near people, You need to cover your face. And people seem to have forgotten that last part. Or what I'm thinking is that they think that their comfort for not wearing a mask is more important than protecting the people around them. So I just think that that attitude of not caring about people, that's infectious also. Yeah, I mean, the the harder you breathe out, whether it's, you know, huffing and puffing when you're exercising or coughing or sneezing, you know, the more forceful you breathe out, the farther you're pushing the virus out into the air. And it can, you know, a lot of it will fall down, but some of it can linger. So, yeah, I would I would keep my distance away from folks who are, you know, breathing heavily if they're not wearing a mask. I think that's a wise thing to do. Right. Well, finally, I wanted to ask you, as a pediatrician, I wanted to get your reaction to the news this week that the Justice Department's 
top officials were a driving force behind the Trump administration's policy to separate thousands of immigrant children, even infants, from their parents at the U.S. southern border. And the report that I read in the New York Times sheds new light on the policy, uh, which had previously been kind of blamed all on Homeland Security. And it, to me, it shows that, that Trump himself was a really driving force behind this policy. Well, yeah, certainly the Department of his Department of Justice was, and you know, and this is not totally new. I mean, the other administrations, the Obama administration, also separated children from parents and put some children in cages. But this is, you know, it's a whole new level now, and we see from this uh, new information just how vicious they kind of were about it and no regard. And this points to the whole problem of the criminalization of crossing borders. You know, money can cross borders freely. Corporations can move their money anywhere around the world they want to, but people are not allowed to cross borders freely. And so it really should not be treated as a crime to cross a border. People who are coming in to the United States are often coming because they're they're trying to flee from, you know, what has happened in their countries that the United States has caused, whether it's economic devastation or violence or climate destruction. And so we need to treat them as human beings. And, you know, as a pediatrician, it just really is mind boggling that young children, including infants, would be separated from their parents. I don't think any one of us would tolerate our child being separated from us. That's just a horrific thing. It's its terrible for the parents. And we've seen, you know, with some of the children getting reunited, how traumatized they are from that experience. Right. Well, we're definitely going to keep uh, following the story because when I've spoken to immigration uh, activists and lawyers for immigrants, they say that this policy is actually still ongoing that it's not over, that not all the children have been reunited with their families, and that families are still being separated. It's just not in the news. Yeah, no, we need to keep talking about this and talking about the fact that, you know, just like so many other things in our country that are criminalized, you know, these are violations of human rights, and we need to stop them. Right. Okay, well, I've been speaking to Dr. Margaret Flowers, a pediatrician and veteran activist here in D.C. Oh, oh, and I want you to let us know about the fund for young activists that you've set up in memory of Kevin Zeese. Oh, yeah, thank you. So um, it's called the Kevin Zeese Emerging Activists Fund, and it's been set up by uh, our families, you know, his family. And so people can learn about that at popularresistance.org. But we'll be launching it on October 28th. Uh, with a gala and online kind of celebration, but people can get the application after that on popularresistance.org and we'll make our first grant in January. So if you're a young activist, um, check it out. All right. Well, thank you, Margaret. Thank you.
Voices on the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And on the ground listeners know that we have been covering with some shock and amazement the nonchalant response from Washington lawmakers to the economic crisis facing most of us. Since March, 60 million people have applied for unemployment assistance at some point. Many more have not been able to apply. Retailers, including Disney, Allstate, United Airlines, and American Airlines, announced plans recently to fire or furlough more than 60,000 workers. Yet Senate Leader Mitch McConnell announced last weekend on October 3rd that the full Senate would be in recess until October 19th, and that's without considering any of the COVID relief bills passed by the House that would restore For example, supplemental employment aid, assistance to cash-strapped states or cities or small businesses, and distribute another round of those $1,200 checks to, theoretically, everyone. Well, my next guest saw this crisis of do-nothing coming all the way back in March and says that's when it needed to be fixed. David Dayan is executive editor of The American Prospect. His first book, chain of title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, won the Studs and Ida Turkle Prize. Welcome to On the Ground, David. Thank you for having me on. Well, let's start with what's happening right now. I I can't believe that Trump, McConnell, and the rest of the Republicans think it's actually a good look to have Trump, on the one hand, with all of his free top-rate health care that taxpayers pay for, deny aid, not to mention health care, to the rest of the American people this week, then try to reverse themselves. And on the other hand, why have the Democrats allowed them to get away with not passing any of the HEROES Act, um, which I understand would have supplied you know, more aid to Americans, and they haven't done anything since May with that legislation? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit hard to piece out exactly what's going on, but here's kind of what I think. So as you sort of referred to in March, the economy was breaking down, particularly around corporates and stocks and corporate bond prices and things like that. And Mitch McConnell was desperate to get some relief for that element of the economy, for the rich, for the the powerful. And he was able to do so. And Ever since then, we sort of had a what some people consider to be a K-shaped recovery. If you look at the top 10% of income earners, they have been restored almost exactly to the level in terms of employment and wages that they were before the pandemic. Uh, most of the pain is happening at the low end of the income scale. And that's just not a high priority for the Republican Party. And so what you saw was months of delay at doing another round of COVID relief, even though uh, Democrats had this bill, this $3 trillion bill called the HEROES Act, and a, a number of important priorities that they wanted to put forward. There was, I guess, some sense that Trump, seeing the election coming around the corner, would want to provide some robust economic relief to, that he could tout in his reelection campaign. But I think at some point this switched and it became not Donald Trump's decision to make, but Mitch McConnell's decision to make. My understanding is that before Trump made the announcement that he was cutting off stimulus talks on Tuesday, McConnell had a meeting with Trump where he said that he wouldn't be able to pass anything that Nancy Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin had been negotiating on, that he wouldn't do it. 
And so it was really McConnell who shut this down, not Trump. People are wondering why would Trump commit political suicide by denying economic relief during a pandemic a month before re-election? It's because it was not his decision to make. And the reason I think McConnell is doing this is because he's looking past this election. If you look at the polls, uh, it does not look good for Donald Trump and the Republican Party right now. McConnell is a pure political animal. He is probably looking to 2022 instead of 2020, thinking about how can he best engineer a comeback. He thinks back to 2009 and 2010, where all the Republicans did was obstruct President Obama when he was trying to get stimulus into the economy. And he's thinking, I'm going to rerun that strategy. I'm going to deny this relief now. I'm going to make sure Biden comes into the worst situation possible, uh, an economic disaster, and I'll spend the next two years blaming it on him, hoping that everybody forgot the name Donald Trump and coronavirus and, and flush everything else down the memory hole, and then try again in 2022 to regain my majority. That's how I think this ended up playing out. Once Republicans got the corporate benefits, the bailouts, that relief at the top of the income scale, they were not going to be interested in doing anything for ordinary people. And what that meant is, is that first bill should have been negotiated like it was the last bill, like it was the last thing you were possibly going to get. Yeah. So tell us why that didn't happen. I mean, I know it's kind of going back to that time, but yeah. why didn't Democrats get what they needed for the American people out of the gate. I think it was a lack of urgency and a sort of arrogance that they could always come back because Trump had a re-election to consider if further relief was needed. The bill as it was provided decent but temporary benefits for ordinary people, the $1,200 stimulus checks, the $600 a month in unemployment insurance, and permanent world-changing relief for people at the top of the income scale, from tax cuts to giant amount of money pointed at the corporate sector that has allowed stocks to boost and business to go on sort of as usual, there was this indication that they would be able to come back. I remember in April, an interview that Nancy Pelosi gave to Jake Tapper of CNN, where uh, he said, well, shouldn't you have gotten state and local government relief? early because now who knows what the Republicans are going to, going to do. And she said, just calm down. We oh, will I get saw that clip. <laughs> local government relief. And she was just wrong about that. It was just clear to me that once you lost all the leverage from the first bill, that you weren't going to be able to get much more. And that's exactly what happened. You know, in addition to thinking about the Trump having an election year and thinking that, you know, he will want to do the right thing, I think that perhaps Americans looking at their lawmakers, maybe we also assume that, well, these lawmakers, even though they're Republicans or, you know, whatever, whoever they are, they will actually want to do the right thing for Americans because they're also their constituents. I mean, right. their constituents aren't all Wall Street bankers and big corporate money makers. So aren't these Republicans also hurting people in their own districts? Yeah, you're right about that in theory. I think in practice, we live in a plutonomy. This is an economy of, for, and by plutocrats. And that's who gets listened to in Washington. 
And, you know, there have been studies about this in terms of who gets what they need out of government. And overwhelmingly, it's the rich and connected and powerful. And that was the manner in which this was taken. And, you know, I kind of expect that of Republicans, but I don't expect the, the party that presumes to be the party of the people to expect that they can go back to the well over and over and over again and expect cooperation from a party that's just for the rich and powerful and plutocratic. It was a terrible strategy. And we're living with the consequences. Essentially, we put a temporary hold on the deep recession that's coming. But that hold has been lifted. It was lifted at the end of July when the unemployment benefits went from $600 a week, federal enhancement to zero. And now we're staring down the barrel of a, a really tough economic time. Now, you know, Joe Biden could get in, you could see a trifecta on the Democratic side, and they might be able to remedy this. But a lot of the damage has been done, and it's going to take a really concerted effort to reverse it. And the remedy for this was actually, I think, very simple. All that would have been needed is a one-line rider in the initial legislation, the CARES Act, that would have said, this relief continues for the duration of the national emergency. Right. And the Republicans were saying at that time, this is going to go away in April, this is going to be a two-month thing. You know, they would not have seen that necessarily as something that committed you to a year-long or two-year-long ordeal. And it would have actually provided incentives to actually handle the virus, which of course is the biggest problem with the economy, is that we don't have a handle on the virus. And if you made the relief contingent on the national emergency, then you would have uh, created incentives to actually end the national emergency. Right. So uh, it seems to me this was very simple. The remedy here was super easy. And yet we're faced now with what amounts to a tragedy. While we're back at March, I read a piece that you did back at that time really talking about how the money given to banks, I suppose, or Wall Street was actually going to be multiplied to be more money by the Fed. Can you just explain to us, like, what was the size of that package that we're talking about? And then how was the, the money allocated to corporations kind of multiplied to be more for them? Absolutely. So, you know, the CARES Act structured this delivery of $454 billion from the Treasury Department to the Federal Reserve to set up these facilities to give very cheap loans to corporate America. And the, the way that it works is they were almost christening a new bank. They were setting up these credit facilities that acted like banks, and the $454 billion was like a deposit. And the way banks work is they can lend out way above their deposits because the deposits, all they do is absorb losses. And if they don't expect to take very many losses, then that deposit base doesn't have to be as big. It doesn't have to be a 100% scenario, right? So what they did was they levered it up at 10 to 1. And what that means is that there wasn't $450 billion to give out to anyone who wanted it in corporate America. There was actually $4.5 trillion that was available. Uh, I call this the giant money cannon. And it was so big that the Fed almost didn't have to fire it to make it effective. They had this 
trillion in reserve that was essentially a statement to corporate America that said, we're not going to let you fail. If you have a problem, we have 4.5 trillion reasons that you're not going to be hurt by it. And, uh, you know, the way that markets work, they took that signal and said, you know what, we're going to be okay. And private sector actors started lending again. Companies were able to get more benefits through that. They were able to get whatever loans that they needed. They were able to get the money that they needed to get them through this patch. The money overwhelmingly was provided to large corporations, not smaller ones or small businesses. And so that's sort of the mechanism. Right. And on the other side, how was the money divided for the rest of us? It was divided in a way that was temporary and inadequate. You had the $1,200 one-time stimulus checks, which have not been replicated. You had the And not everyone received them either. Well, yes. I mean, that was, that was, it was means-tested, and then some people who didn't pay federal taxes are still waiting these things. There was the, the $600 a week benefit enhancement to state unemployment benefits, but that ended at the end of July. There was the $500 billion plus paycheck protection program, which was a small business program. It was like a pass through the small business employees, but that only covered two and a half months of payroll. We're now in the eighth month of the coronavirus crisis. It just wasn't enough to cover everything. And then there was all the stuff that wasn't really in this bill. There was a bailout for airlines and a bailout for hospitals and, uh, and, and various other things, but there wasn't any support or, or very limited support and certainly no support to cover the tremendous revenue shortfall of state and local governments. They were given a little bit of money, but that was to cover new costs because of the coronavirus for testing and things like that. All of the costs for all of the the money that has been lost for from income tax and from sales tax and all that money uh, has not been covered at all by the federal government. It's going to lead to a tremendous amount of austerity, cutbacks at every level of state and local government. And the list goes on. There's just a host of other things that weren't in that initial bill, rental assistance, funding for elections, funding for testing, funding for vaccine delivery, funding for the post office to make sure that they were taken care of. The list goes on. And these things that should have been covered up front were pushed off to later. We'll get them in the next bill. We'll get them in the next bill. Well, what we've learned now is that there won't be a next bill. You just said that so starkly. I was like, really? There won't be absolutely a next bill? So let me say there might be a next bill in the new Congress when Joe Biden is inaugurated, but I don't see it. I mean, that's what Trump said. He wasn't going to negotiate. So we're looking at uh, several months of no relief and a really difficult situation for the economy. I, I'm, yeah, I mean, uh, in, the, in the, the moratorium on evictions and foreclosures are right. ending. And for a lot of people with children, you know, thinking about not really having holidays like they would like, what they're used to having. But I have a real question about how evenly the pain is being felt. I keep hearing about studies that say the professional class, people, many people have only had to shift to working at home as opposed to like totally losing their job. 
And I was also really thinking about the link between this and something else we cover, which is the movement for black lives and the call to defund the police. Because mm-hmm. part of that whole argument is the fact that cities and states are, you know, a large portions of their budgets go to police, policing, and those jobs get cut last. Just like yeah. the military and the bloated Pentagon budget, that doesn't get cut. You know, they wouldn't even vote for a 10% cut in the Pentagon. Yeah. So how evenly is the pain being felt uh, from what you can tell? It's completely uneven. I mean, we know this. What I mentioned earlier about the K-shaped recovery, right. uh, if, you just, if you just look at the various segments of income earners in the economy, the top 10% is virtually back to where they were before the pandemic, whereas the bottom 50% are nowhere near in that position. Uh, And that's disproportionately felt by black and brown people as well. In fact, uh, when you're talking about state and local governments, a disproportionate share of city and state employees are black and brown workers. So, you know, not only is it that the police gets last in line, but the the groups that get first in line with furloughs and pay cuts and and layoffs are also disproportionately people of color. So this is definitely exposed what happens in our society when there is trouble that the rich get protected and everybody else, you know, is left to their own devices. And but I guess what I'm saying, too, is there's there's like the rich and there's that bottom 50 percent. But there's some of that portion between 50% and 90%. I don't know whether you want to call them the middle class or uh, the people whose jobs, yeah, the, the people's, the people's uh, whose know, jobs protect the rich, like even, right? Their jobs are protected also. I think there's going to be a reckoning there. I mean, you mentioned at the top these mass layoffs that are happening, Disney, United Airlines, American Airlines. A lot of those are the rank-and-file workers, but... You know, there's going to be a reckoning. Some of those jobs are in headquarters. And eventually, we're sort of turning from a COVID recession to what a regular recession looks like. And what happens in a regular recession is that the lack of consumer spending, which is a large part of our economy, leads to businesses having to cut back at all levels. And often that hits that upper middle class, middle management sort of area where, where companies try to thin down and try to survive. So I think that we are slowly moving from something that is mainly about shutdowns and the fact that you can't congregate large groups of people and the effect on the restaurant sector and the retail sector and the amusements and leisure sector to a regular kind of recession where you have depressed spending and that has a broad impact throughout the economy. Right. Well, I guess you've kind of started to cover what was my last question. And that was, you know, what does the forecast look like uh, because of the negligence or the lack of response here in Washington? If when something does happen, will it be too late? Yeah, I mean, that's the fear. You would presume that a vice president Biden who becomes a president Biden in January would have as his first priority to come up with a big package to affect economic recovery, as he says, uh, build back better uh, and invest and spend a lot of federal money. The question is how much scarring from this crisis has happened between now and then. And the second question is, have we defeated the virus? 
I mean, as long as we're not allowed to have an arena venue filled with people, or we're not allowed, and it's not about not being allowed, but it's being dangerous, right, to not have a restaurant filled with people. We're just not going to have a normal economy until those things return. And so Biden has a very difficult sort of twin directive where he has to obviously get money into the economy so that we prevent the worst things from happening. But also he has to fight this virus and we're not going to get an economy back until the virus is solved. So I am very concerned that it's very late in the game for these things to be happening. And there's going to be a lot of very needless suffering in the exchange. I read one thing recently about restaurants having a little reprieve because they've been able to do creative things here in D.C. and around the country like outdoor, you know, sidewalk seating. And but with the weather getting cold, fewer people want to sit outside and pretend that, you know, they don't yeah. notice this is cold. So I, I live in California, so that might be a year round proposition, but nobody's going to be sitting in December al fresco in Washington, D.C. or New York or anywhere up the eastern seaboard. So right. we got we to gotta figure out a better solution. Well, I guess we'll leave it there. I want to thank my guest, David Dayan, executive editor of The American Prospect. Thank you for joining me today, David. Okay, thank you very much. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Thank you to Chantel James, Thomas O'Rourke, and Lydia Curtis. And I want to extend a special shout out to our newest listeners at WRFI in Ithaca, New York, and Watkins Glen, New York, at KMSW in San Antonio, Texas, and KYGT The Goat in Denver, Colorado. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show at On The Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our new podcast, On The Ground with Esther Averam, that's On The Ground, W. Esther Averam is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages, and our website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On The Ground. The music we played this hour included Isaya Roussan, Cloud Blue, Burnt Sugar, What Rough Beast, and Fela Kuti, Truth Don't Die. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Avera. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>